morning. Please turn with me to Habakkuk 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So how many times over the last six months have you heard the phrase, in these uncertain times? can't tell you how many times I have seen different commercials and political ads and Facebook posts and emails from different organizations and churches and schools and politicians that have begun with that phrase, in these uncertain times. Now, we could look at that phrase and the mass overuse of it and make the statement, well, we must be super unified right now because everyone is using the same phrase. But I guess we know better than that. Because although we are using the same phrase, whether you are a candidate for president or senate or the National Football League or a restaurant that wants to know that when you're there, your family, although we start with the same phrase, what happens in the next part is very different depending on the message that you're trying to give. On the political ads, the transition goes something like this. In these uncertain times, don't you dare vote for Jill. She's going to make things much, much worse. Instead, vote for Bill. He will make things much, much, much better. And the commercials, the transition goes something like this. In these uncertain times, isn't it nice to know that you have good insurance to fall back on? Or isn't it nice to know that you have a nice, comfy pillow to lay your head on at the end of the day? Or isn't it nice to know that you have a good lawyer who can give you the compensation that you deserve from that asbestos-related injury that you have? Generally, I think we can agree on one part of all of that, is that we are living in uncertain times. Can we at least agree on that? Yes? Okay, but then when we move past that, that's when things start to get a little bit grayer. What is our response to the uncertainty? What is the answer to the uncertainty? Is it to make sure that our political party is in office? Is it to make sure that we buy the best product? Is it to make sure that our kids are playing sports or are going to school or that our freedoms are not taken away or that our family is safe? Is it to make sure that we buy it when we see it at Martin's? Actually, it would be a really good slogan for 2020. Hindsight. I should have bought it when I saw it at Martin's. But here's the truth, though, about uncertain times. There's never actually been a time, as far as we are concerned, when we're completely certain of what today or tomorrow or the next day will bring. There's not truly any certainty that tomorrow will be any better than today. 
There's no certainty that, that some big surprise is not going to happen in the next five minutes. Now, admittedly, this year does seem to have an excess of uncertainty. I'll give you that. And that's why this book of Habakkuk is such a great book for us to focus on right now. It's important right now for us to look at Habakkuk, a man who faced uncertain times of his own, but he also struggled with what was going on in the world around him and and to him and to his country. He looked at his country that was seemingly falling apart as it fell into the hands of evil men. He watched as people died. And he complained because the Lord was seemingly doing nothing about it. Important for us to see that Habakkuk got into the wrestling ring with God and said, God, why? God, what are you doing? God, how long are you going to do it? But it's not only important that we see that, it's also important that we see that God responded. It's also important that we remember that the God that Habakkuk wrestled with and the God that Habakkuk complained to and the God who responded to Habakkuk is the same God that we worship today, the same God that we may need to wrestle with today. He still responds in the same way today. He still has an answer today to uncertainty. And I want to look today, as we look at Habakkuk 2, at how we should respond as followers of God, as believers in Jesus, as the church, as people of hope, when times of uncertainty come in our lives, how should we respond? That's what I want to focus on this morning. The answer to that question of how we should respond not only gives us how we should live our lives, but also how much joy we will have in our lives, how much peace we will have in our lives, how much fear will take hold of our hearts when things don't go well, how much we will grow in our relationship with God during times of uncertainty, or how much progress our church will make as it desires to help us to grow in our relationship with God, and how successful we'll be as we seek to witness to our community who is facing all sorts of uncertainty and who desperately needs Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning to keep your Bibles open to Habakkuk 2, and I would also encourage you to open up on our online bulletin sermon outline this morning on our website so you can follow along. Today, as as we look at God's response to Habakkuk, we'll seek to find the answer to how we should respond in uncertain times. And I want to look in three ways at how we can do that as God's people. Now, when we're in times of uncertainty and we're climbing into the wrestling ring with God, we say things to God, like Habakkuk said in the first couple of chapters here, how long, O Lord? We say things like Habakkuk said, like, why, Lord, do you idly sit by as, as evil happens? As we say things like Habakkuk said, aren't you the everlasting, all-powerful, all-loving, sovereign God? But all we hear and all we see and all we experience in response uncertain. How then should we respond? First way that we need to respond is by watching for an answer from the Lord. 
You've probably heard me say many times that I enjoy hiking. If I'm honest with you this morning, it's not really the hiking that I enjoy, but rather the view. And because hiking sometimes is difficult, hiking sometimes hurts. And I don't really like difficult things. I don't know about you. I don't really like the hurt. But I do like the view. And so it's worth the pain and the difficulty to get to the place where I can see the view. I was thinking this week about Moses when he got to the top of Mount Pisgah. Moses was reaching the end of his life. God told him to go up onto the top of Mount Pisgah. And you know what Moses saw when he stood there on top of Mount Pisgah? He looked out and he saw for the first time the promised land. Now this must have been an amazing sight for Moses. You think about where Moses came from. He came out of Egypt with all the plagues and the exodus and to the Red Sea and to Mount Sinai and, and to lead a rebellious people for 40 years across the desert. And then finally, he gets to the top of this mountain. He looks out and he sees displayed in front of him the answer to his prayers, the answer to his people's prayers, the promised land. What a moment that must have been. And just up the road from me in Winthrop, from my house, is another mountain with the same name as that mountain in Moab, Mount Pisgah, although Mount Pisgah in Winthrop is a little bit smaller, a little bit less impressive, and doesn't have any views of the promised land. But as you climb up to the top of Mount Pisgah in Winthrop, and you climb up to the top of the fire tower that's there at the summit, you can see on a clear day mountains that are over 100 miles away, like Mount Washington in New Hampshire. My wife and I like to, to climb up there, and we climbed up one night just as the sun was about to go down, and we climbed up to the fire tower, and we watched as the sun set over the White Mountains, and we watched as this orange glow spread over the trees below us. It was worth stopping and pausing and watching. In verse 1, Habakkuk pictures himself in much the same way, standing in the tower, watching... And what is he watching for? He's watching for God to respond to his complaint. So here's what he says. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So in times of uncertainty, what should differentiate us as followers of God from people who don't have God or or people who choose to not follow God is what we watch for in uncertain times. When the world watches the chaos that is unfolding around them with hopelessness, we should watch for an answer from the Lord. When the world watches the news with fear and with despair, we should watch for an answer from the Lord. When the world watches helplessly the political and racial and moral unrest with anger and annoyance, we should watch for an answer from the Lord. And when I stood on that tower on Mount Pisgah and I watched as the sun went down, there was never a moment when I thought, hmm, I wonder if the sun will go all the way down today. I wonder if it'll just kind of stop and and sit there, or or maybe it'll dance around a little bit, or or maybe it'll decide to go back up. No, I I knew what was going to happen, but yet I watched anyways. I knew it was going to go down, I knew it was going to go all the way down, and I knew it was going to get dark. And I watched expectantly, waiting for that to happen. And that's how Habakkuk pictures himself as he's standing, watching for the Lord's answer. Habakkuk doesn't say, I wonder if God will answer. 
He doesn't say, man, I hope God gets back to me. He doesn't say, maybe the Lord will answer. I don't know. No, he says, I will watch to see what the Lord has to say to me. He watched for an answer from the Lord with expectancy. He anticipated, he expected, he knew that the Lord would answer. Now, he didn't know what the answer was going to be, but he knew that there would be an answer from the Lord. And the prophet Micah watched for the Lord's answer in the same way. He said in Micah 7.7, I put that on the sermon outline this morning, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So this is the crucial thing for us to understand in this first way that we need to respond in uncertain times. Watching for the Lord's answer doesn't mean you know what the answer is, but rather you know that the Lord knows what the answer is, and so you trust Him. And that allows us to not be afraid when the world is crippled by fear. That allows us to not be angry when the world is outraged by everything. To not be filled with hopelessness when the world is wandering around aimlessly following the whims of their favorite politician or celebrity or athlete or scientist or religious leader. All of which can and do fail when it comes to having an answer to uncertainty. But when we watch with expectancy for an answer from the Lord, our outlook on life is no longer limited to what our current circumstances are, but rather to the limitless sovereignty of the God who we choose to worship. So here's good news in all of this. The watching is not the end. It's not the end of, of the story here in Habakkuk. It's not the end of our story. It's not like, well, I'm watching for an answer from the Lord. I may never get it, but I'm just going to watch for it. And that's good enough for me. I'm thankful that that's not it. Because God does respond to Habakkuk. You see that in verse 2. It says there, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So the second way that we are to respond to uncertain times is by waiting on the promises of God. Now this is the second time in as many chapters that Habakkuk has received a response from God. And there's been times in my life when I've thought to myself, wouldn't it be nice to be in the shoes or, or the sandals of a prophet to hear the audible voice of God, God saying, go do this. No, don't do that. It's very clear what I'm supposed to do. To be like Moses and, and to be climbing the mountain and to see a bush on fire with my eyes and to hear the audible voice saying, take your sandals off. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. Wouldn't it be nice to climb to the top of the mountain to have my face in the cleft of the rock and see the glory of God pass by. Wouldn't it be nice for God to say, go to the top of that mountain and look out. There's the answer to your prayer, the promised land. Wouldn't life just be so much easier? God would just say it to me. Now here's the problem. 
that way of thinking. That Moses, as he climbed Mount Pisgah, and as he climbed Mount Sinai, and Habakkuk, as he climbed into the wrestling ring with God, every other prophet and, and person in the Bible had so much less of God's revelation at their disposal than what we have today in God's Word. Today in God's Word, we have the entire canon of Scripture, 66 books of the Bible, starting with the creation of the world through the time of the law and the time of the judges and the time of the kings and the time of the prophets till the coming Messiah who came and died and rose again and ascended into heaven, who sent His Holy Spirit, who, who started the church, who is coming back to usher in a new heaven and a new and perfect earth. All stuff that we can understand because we have the inspired Word of God. Stuff that, that Moses didn't understand. Stuff that Habakkuk didn't understand. How blessed are we to have all of that truth at our disposal. We understand if, if we read God's Word so much more than any of the prophets ever did. And not only that, but we have at our disposal the promised Holy Spirit of God with which we can understand and apply all of God's commands and promises to our lives. So from cover to cover in this God-breathed, Spirit-inspired Word of God, we are given the answers to our problems through the promises of God. Here in Habakkuk, in just two verses, verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, we see five truths that Habakkuk receives from God in this vision, which are all equally true about every verse of the rest of the Scriptures. And I want to go over those quickly. Uh, if you have time, look over the sermon outline so that you can kind of soak that in a little bit more. But for time constraints, we're going to go through them pretty quickly. But in verse 2, it says this, The Lord answered me. We read, when we read the promises of God, we need to remember, most importantly, that they are from God. That changes everything. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 1, 20-21, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if we forget, or we take for granted, that this word is from God, is inspired by and breathed out by God for us, it will be so easy to just set that down and let it collect dust. It's so easy to take for granted how powerful this book is for us. But when we remember that it's God's words, then it carries all sorts of new significance for our lives. We need to remember that promises are from God. And continuing down in verse 2, we see the second truth about the promises of God. God says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. And when we read the promises of God in Scripture, we need to remember that they are clear. Now, the God of the universe, the, the all-knowing, all-powerful God, could have tried to reveal Himself in a way to us that, that was so profound that no one could ever understand it. That's not what He did. He made it clear for us. He made it, His promises clear for us so that we know how to come to Him. And so we know the end and what will happen. It reminds me of what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai, and then Moses repeated to the elders 
at the Jordan River before they went into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 27.8, Moses said this, You shall write on the stones all the words of this law very plainly. For the law and the promises of God were given to us in a clear way so that we could understand them, so that we could pass them on to each other and pass them on to the generations that would follow. We know that Moses followed God and the elders followed God and we know that Habakkuk followed God in making it plain because we still have it here today. We are still reading from it today. So God said, make it plain on tablets and he who may run who reads it. So not only do we remember that the promises are from God and, and, and they're clear, we have to remember that they're important. They're given so that someone who has them will run to tell others about it. They're given in a clear form so that messengers can say, look what I've got. It's profound. It's important. The prophets did that, and the church continues to do that today as it translates the Bible into all sorts of languages around the world. And that's why the Bible, year after year, every year, is the top-selling book, and not by a small margin, over every other book for the history of the world. Because the promises of God are that important. And every single part of the promises of God and God's Word is important because they're not hearsay, they're not guesswork, they're not myths. God says in verse 3, it will not lie. So when we read the promises of God in Scripture, we need to remember they're true. That may seem redundant to say the promises are from God and they are true. And it kind of is redundant. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie. So God will not lie. In fact, not only will God not lie, God cannot lie. Because it is ungodly to lie. And God cannot be ungodly. He will not be unlike himself. So because that everything that comes from God is true, and Scripture comes from God, and the promises come from God, they are true. They are important. They are clear. And lastly, and most importantly to our message this morning about uncertainty, they are certain. Back to verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So this is the crucial thing for us to understand concerning the second way that we need to respond in uncertain times. Waiting on the Lord's promises doesn't mean we know when they will be fulfilled. Just that they will be fulfilled. And so we trust in Him. It may seem to us like God is slow in keeping His promises, but that's only because His timetable is different than ours. And I'm thankful for that because He knows a whole lot more than we do. If I was going to run things, things would not be going quite so well. But God knows better than I do. I can't tell you how many times in the moment I've complained about something and later said, oh, that's what he was doing. Couldn't see it then. But it's that perceived slowness that, that starts to make us feel uneasy because it's in the waiting that we feel uncertain and no one likes to feel uncertain. We like to have it all figured out. 
But remember, in uncertain times, we need to respond by watching for an answer from the Lord. And the best way that we can do that is by looking for His answers in His Word. They are the promises of God, and they are clear, and they are important, and they are true, and they are certain. And once we find those promises, we need to then just wait on them. Because they will come true. Now, before we get to the final verse, I just want to focus on those two words of watch and wait for a second. Now, when we think of the words watch and wait, I mean, they're verbs, they imply action, but that's not how we really think about them. When we think about somebody who's watching and waiting, we think they're not really doing a whole lot, right? They're just kind of sitting there. And it reminds me of the disciples after Jesus had died and, and rose again and had been with them for 40 days, and he spoke his last words to them. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And then he was taken up. He ascended right in front of their eyes. And they watched as he went up, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And then we don't have written what the disciples said to each other after that. So I'm going to kind of do my paraphrase, but I think it was this. He said he's coming back. I guess we'll just wait here. Okay, and they waited and they watched until two angels showed up. And again, my paraphrase, the angel said, what are you guys doing? What are you guys looking at? What are you waiting for? Get to work. And so they did. And shortly after that, the Holy Spirit showed up. And the church exploded with growth. This is the point. It's not enough in uncertain times to just watch for an answer from the Lord, even if it's expectantly. It's not enough to wait on the promises of the Lord, even if they are a certainty. We need to, in uncertain times, live with faith in the Lord. So look back one last time to Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. It's there that God begins to give His vision to Habakkuk. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And then God goes on to give a much longer discourse with a bunch of woes, which we will be talking about next week. But the point that God's making here in this first statement of his vision is that in uncertain times, you have a choice to make in how you will respond. You can respond by living in two ways. Living with pride or living with faith. And let me tell you, the difference between living with pride and living with faith doesn't start out sounding all that different. Because when all of us face pain or, or trials or uncertainty in our lives, we all start out sounding a lot the same. We start to question what God's doing in our lives. God, what, what are you doing? We start to think, God, what are you doing in our world? We start to say, God, you must not know what you're doing. Because this plan of yours, this situation that I find myself in, that you have allowed to happen or that you have caused to happen, it's not fun. I'm in pain. People are in pain. There's chaos. There's turmoil. God, I don't get it. And it's at that point when we've climbed into the ring and we've had that wrestling match with God and we've said those words to God, God, I don't get it. God, I don't like this. God, what are you doing? God, how long are you going to do this? It's at that moment 
that we have the choice to make. Are we going to choose to live with pride or live with faith? Pride says, God, I don't like what you're doing, and I'm fed up with it. I'm sick of it. I'm over it. Pride responds in anger when things in the world don't go the way that we want. It's pride that causes us to complain about our leaders. It's pride that tempts us to to look at our own interests rather than the interests of others. It's pride that stirs up in us this spirit of outrage, selfishness, spirit of fear. It's pride that even as I list these evidences of pride causes us to say, well, he's not talking about me. Talking about somebody else, obviously. But faith looks different, doesn't it? Faith still may start with, God, I don't know what you're doing. God, I, I don't like what you're doing. It still may start with, God, I don't want this. God, I don't like this plan. But then it quickly moves to where Jesus moved in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, God, but not my will, but yours be done. It quickly moves to what Jesus' attitude was as he went to the cross, which we see outlined in Philippians 2, which says, not my wants, not my needs, not my interests, but the interests of others. I want to give you an example this morning from the Scriptures. The Psalms are filled with painful prayers and laments of people who, who struggled with what was going on in their lives, whether a situation that was happening to them or done to them or just loss in their lives. And Psalm 102 is one of those psalms. The title of it is, A Prayer of One Afflicted When He Is Faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. That psalm could easily have been the cry of Habakkuk as he looked out at what was happening to his people. It easily could be the cry of the church today as we look out and see what is happening to the world. It could be easily the cry of the world today with all that they are facing. But here the psalmist who is struggling climbs into the wrestling ring with God. And listen to what he says. He says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All day long my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger, Lord. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And then at that moment, in all of that pain, and all of that suffering, and all of that wrestling with God, the psalmist says this, But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have mercy. It's at that moment of wrestling that 
the psalmist said, I'm going to choose faith. I'm going to choose to live by faith, even though I've had all of this stuff going on in my life. Although the author had not seen an answer from the Lord, he still expectantly watched for it. Although the author did not know how long it would be until the promises of the Lord would be fulfilled, he still waited with certainty. He chose to live by faith. You know, my favorite Bible verse is from Romans 1.16. It's a verse that I've had as my life verse since I was 18 years old. It's tattooed on my wrist. That verse says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also the Greek. And then the very next verse after that, which gives us the theme of the entire great book of Romans, quotes from our passage today from Habakkuk 2.4. It says, For in the gospel, the, righteous, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Living by faith in the Lord doesn't mean that we have all the answers, but we understand that God does. Living by faith in the Lord doesn't mean that we know how long it will be until God's promises are fulfilled, but we know that they will be. Living by faith doesn't mean that there'll be no more pain or no, no trials or uncertainty in our lives, but only that how we live our lives and who we live our lives for never changes. The outcome of, a, of an election changes our resolve to live by faith. If the spreading of a virus threatens our firmness in the faith, if the sin of hateful racists or bigots or hypocrites upends our passion for the faith, if anything other than the return of Jesus himself or the grave would end our steadfastness to fulfill our purpose here on earth, to live by faith, to make disciples, to be the church of God, we have to take a long look at how we are reacting in uncertain times. It's in times of uncertainty, in times of pain, that we either are strengthened in our resoluteness to live by faith, or we recognize that there are things in our life that were more important than our faith all along. We say that God is more than enough. We say that His grace is enough. We say that God is more than all we want and all we need. But when uncertainty comes, do our actions match our words? Now, it's easy to get discouraged right now. I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to be encouraged this morning. If you're feeling anxious today or fearful today or, or angry today over the circumstances that are in your life or in your world, first of all, I'd say get into the wrestling ring with God. Tell God, this is how I'm feeling, like the psalmist did, like Habakkuk did. Come with your complaints to God and say, God, how long? God, why? God, what are you doing? God, I'm struggling. God, I don't like what, what this plan that you have, whatever it is, I don't like it. Then pause and say, but you, O Lord. And then speak the truths about God. But you, O Lord, are good. But you, O Lord, are sovereign. But you, O Lord, are trustworthy and faithful, almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. 
then take a look at your own response. Say, hey, because you are good, Lord, and because you are all of those things, Lord, I will. I will watch with expectancy for an answer from the Lord. I will wait with certainty on the promises of the Lord. I will live with faith, obeying the commands of the Lord. It is your faith in God that should distinguish you from the world. If we act and and we respond and we retaliate to uncertainty in the same way that the world does with anger or fear or outrage or despair, we're not living by faith. But thanks to the grace of God, which is enough, by the way, and we can live and watch and wait in faith. Let's pray together. God, thank you that you do want us to wrestle with you over our hurts and trials and uncertainties. Thank you that you do hear and answer our prayers. Thank you for your promises given to us in your word, especially the promise of salvation through your son, Jesus. Because of Jesus, we don't need to fear the temporary uncertainty that we are facing or that we ever face. We don't need to be angry at politicians. We don't need to be anxious over any virus. Your grace is enough. And we pray in Jesus' name, your grace is enough. Amen.